Let us begin our psalm for the week out of the hymnal. So you want to turn in the hymnal is number two. It speaks about how uh, the kings of the earth and others are marshaled against the Lord's anointed, namely the Christ, who is the anointed of God the Father to be Savior of mankind. So they're marshaled against him, and the Lord laughs at this. That's Psalm 2. And our hymn for the week, 587, I Know My Faith is Founded. In the congregation at prayer, we'll use John 1, 14 as a, an antiphon verse before and after the psalm. We begin with the invocation and creed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why do the nations rage? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king. On Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
O Lord, we give thanks to you that you laugh at your enemies and have promised to judge all those who persecute your son and his church. Forgive us for doubting your gracious care of the church. Teach us to believe that through the church's suffering for Jesus' sake, we bear witness to him. Give us confident faith to laugh at the enemies of the gospel and to entrust the church's preservation to your sure and certain promises. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And from the Catechism, if you turn the page, we've recited the first, second, third articles of the Apostles' Creed. This is the explanation to the second article concerning the eternal word of the Father, namely his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own, and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness innocence and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity, this is most certainly true. In chapel, I often like to inject as the kids are reciting questions. In the midst of this explanation, I believe that Jesus Christ, who is he? True God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, who is he for you, is my Lord. What has he done for you? Who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. What does redeemed mean? Purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil. How did he redeem you? Not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Why did he redeem you? that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him. Now the preposition is very important that it is in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. It is not with, it is in. With would seem to indicate that the everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness is our own, but that's not the case. The everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness is Christ's. So we serve him or we worship him in his everlasting righteousness, which means freedom, salvation, blessedness. That's the, that's the heritage and the gift that we're given in our baptism. So it's not that we are serving him with our works. It is that we are worshiping him under the mantle and covering and protection of his everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. And then how can we be certain, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity? So let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, to redeem us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, taking all of the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon himself. He descended into hell, proclaiming his victory over the devil. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, preaching the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life in his name to the whole world. We give thanks to you for all that your son has done for us. Help us to know and believe in Jesus. He has now ascended into heaven and sits at your right hand as our Savior and Lord. All the enemies of sin, death, and hell have been placed under his feet, and he now rules over all things for the sake of his church. Give us fervent faith in Jesus and the blessed hope that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, giving the gift of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. O Lord, keep your household, the church, in continual godliness, that through your protection she may be free from all adversities and devoutly given to serve you in good works. We give thanks for the wedding anniversaries of Mike and Angela, Andrew and Jessica, and pray for your sustaining grace, that they may remain faithful to each other all the days of their wedded life. We commend to your care and keeping Kirsten Franklin, as she begins now her service in Africa on a short-term mission trip. Keep her safe, protect her from the forces of darkness, both spiritual and physical, and bring a blessing to her and to those who serve your church in that place. We commend to you the sick, especially Carol, Don, Donna, Luther, Paul, David, Isaiah, Kay, Kathy, Dwayne, Heather, and Josiah, bring healing according to your will, the comfort of your grace, and grant them to abide in your peace. We also commend to you those who mourn the death of loved ones, especially Roseanne's Fells family as they mourn the passing of her brother Reed, the Reverend Aaron Strong, his congregation and family, who mourn his sudden death due to an automobile accident. We pray for Judy Vento's family, the next door neighbor to Jason Peterson, who suffered a massive stroke and died yesterday. And finally, we commend to you the family of Reverend Michael Fries as they mourn the sudden accidental death of their 20-year-old son. Their grief is overwhelming. Comfort them with the sure and certain consolation that your son bore all of our sorrows and grief caused by sin and the brokenness of this world to reconcile us to God. We commend all those to the promises of, our, of their baptism that they shall abide in Christ all the, for all eternity. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has taught us to pray. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 587, stanza 1. I know my faith is founded on Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, and this my faith confessing, unmoved I stand on his sure word, our reason cannot fathom the truth of God profound. Who trusts in human wisdom relies on shifting ground. God's word all sufficient, it makes divinely sure. In its wisdom, my faith shall rest secure. All right. Matthew chapter 15. Yes. Psalm question. Psalm question. Um, I noticed, I was, during chapel this morning, I was trying to pay attention to the conversation. Yeah. In the psalm. The conversation. Um, ask, this is verse 8. Am I understanding this right? This is the father saying to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Yes. Okay. So when Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan is tempting him saying, I'll give you all this, the father already told him, you ask me for this. Yeah, the, the, the redemption of the world is not through the worship of Satan, but... Yeah, when, when the Lord comes again in glory, uh, then there will be judgment against those who have rejected the Lord's anointed. And, and so is that what 12 refers to as well? Be blessed to be angry, um, and you will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly coming. And that, to me, doesn't sound like yeah. yeah, well, remember, this is the Father's word. Nothing hacks off the Father more than if you despise his Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For, for the Father has sent Jesus to do things, to be conceived and born and to suffer and die for the sins of the world. When he comes again in glory, the Father will send him to visit judgment upon those who have rejected him. So he is the obedient and faithful son of the Father. Yep. Good. Other, other questions? Remember, the gospel is, not, is free, but it's not cheap.
And by that I mean he's redeemed us with his holy precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death. Polly, it seems like you've got another question on your No, mind. I have Nietzsche on my notes. Okay. <laughs> it, you are intensely focused. I don't want to, we can, are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Okay. In, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 15, those first 20 verses, we um, talked about the defilement from within, the corruption of original sin. Um, we talked about that which the scribes and the Pharisees simply were not willing to accept about themselves. They're the reality of them being sinful. And we are all sinful. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, verse 19 said, murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and blasphemies. That's what comes out of the heart. The prior condition of being a sinner is why those actions come out. So if you think of sin only in terms of activities, then you miss the most significant part. We've been hearing it this week in the flood narrative in the congregation at prayer. The thoughts and imaginations of man's heart is evil continually from his youth, which is an expression about from the time of his conception. Just as King David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So we say sinful things or we do sinful things or we have sinful thoughts because we have become sinful in Adam's fall and that condition is passed on to us. The Lutheran confessions call it concupiscence, like a disease. Okay? And, and it's that condition that means that it is impossible. There's no such thing as human free will with respect to God after the fall. The will is in bondage to sin. Uh, the will has to be converted. If there were such a thing as free will with respect to God after the fall, one could say, not only, I'm not going to sin anymore. So if you had free will, you'd be able to say that, you'd be able to perform it. But even more, you'd be able to say, I shall not be sinful any longer. Okay? I talked about this on Sunday, to err is human, that expression. Uh, it's actually uh, an expression that speaks about our current condition. But to be human was to be made in the image and likeness of God without sin, but that nature was corrupted. So that now there is that aspect of to err is, is human. But the bondage of the will to sinful inclinations and <clears throat> desires is what we need to be redeemed from. Regeneration, which speaks about the creation of faith in Christ and therefore love for God. Regeneration, which is the creation of the new man, the new will. There is, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in baptism and in the ongoing proclamation of the Word of God, the creation of, an, of a dual personality, or the new nature that is in opposition to the old nature. The old nature is called by the Apostle Paul the old Adam. It is also referred to as the flesh. 
both by Paul and by Jesus as recorded in John's Gospel. So old Adam is speaking about, you know, flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There it's speaking about sinful flesh cannot by its works or merits inherit God's kingdom. The new man, as it is called in the scriptures, or the spirit, it's called the spirit because it's created by the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> has a will that desires to love God and to trust in him. So when a person is regenerated, the old Adam still remains, this is what I mean about the dual nature, and then the new man is also created, and they're in conflict. That's why St. Paul says in Romans, the good that I would do, I do not do, and that which I would not do is the very thing that I do. O wretched man that I am. That's the Apostle Paul saying that. And when he's talking about the good that I would do, he is speaking, you know, according to the new man, according to the new nature, according to the regenerate nature, the good that I would, I don't do. That which I would not do is the very thing that I do. O wretched man that I am. So feels the intrusion of sin. In Galatians 5, the spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that, that you wish. Now, many ask, or if they don't ask, they wonder about, why wouldn't God just eradicate in the regenerate the old Adam, the old nature? The scriptures speak about it being forgiven, but it remains. And it remains on this side of the grave because the resurrection has not yet taken place where the old Adam, the old nature, will forever be destroyed. And the function of the warfare, the battle, the struggle within, is at least twofold. One, to teach us to kiss the sun, to rely only upon Jesus and not at all upon ourselves. And secondly, that in us, now listen carefully, in us there might be manifest as his body, the church, the same mercy and compassion for sinners that the Lord in the gospel demonstrated and showed to us. Do you follow that? With the old, um, there is no... There is no pharisaical disposition among Christians and the true church. I thank God I'm not like the heathen, the unwashed. That's the pharisaical thing. But rather the prayer for their salvation. So, Polly, back to your question about it doesn't sound like Jesus, you know, this visitation of wrath. Now is the time for praying for the enemies and the persecutors. Because as long as there is life, there is hope for them. And so the fact that I continue to struggle with sin helps me empathize and identify with another sinner who does not yet know Christ. Okay? 
So part of God's mystery, the demonstration of his grace in the gospel is not only something that's proclaimed by word, but it is something that is lived out by his church. And the disciples throughout three years are really taught over and over again not to rely upon themselves. And even after three years, Peter says, I'll never deny you. I am strong. Even if all are deny you, I will never deny you. And then a couple of hours later, I swear to God, I don't owe the man. Okay, so much for free will. So much for, you know, the strength of the human spirit. Was there a, yeah. Well, that's, that's often asked, and we commend the whole world to God in Christ. We can only deal with those whom God has put in our path or given op us opportunity to preach to, to confess to, to reach out to in love. <clears throat> and we can barely do that. You know, we, we barely can, can do that. So... Um, I'm amazed at uh, the, the, preserva the, the, the uh, discovery of Christian faith around the globe. Now, I haven't traveled that much, but enough to be where you wouldn't think it would be, it is. So we've got Kirsten in Africa right now. Yeah. Well, she, she left yesterday. Yeah, well, fear not. Fear not. Okay, so that's, that's what I would say about that. You know, it's just like, what, what if they hadn't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, they did. So the question becomes, in a certain sense, um, not as helpful as we might like it to be. We'd like to know answers. Part of living by faith is just that. The answers belong to God. We are called to do what he's given us to do, you know, with our families, with our congregation, with our neighbors, with those who are close to, and so forth. Yep. It never crossed my mind before an answer to that question, but with what you were saying right before, we keep praying, Lord, have mercy. Mm -hmm. That's what we can do about anyone who hasn't heard. Right? Yeah, we pray for the whole world, for those who haven't heard, and we hold on to the great truth that Christ is the Savior of all. I did like Herschel Walker's comment. I was heard this the other day. He's running for Senate in Georgia? Is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, in this debate about abortion, you know, the terrible thing of denying women the right to murder their babies. I don't know why that is considered the moderate position. But Herschel Walker, did you hear what he said? We shouldn't be aborting babies, we should be baptizing them. I thought, <laughs> I thought that was, that was pretty good. Okay, now I, I set up this discussion because we didn't meet last week to remind you of you know, the defilement from within uh, 
discussion, the scribes and Pharisees challenging of Jesus and how out of the heart is what comes out of you that defiles you because of what's in you uh, since the fall. Then we looked at the Gentile woman, the um, up here Tyre and Sidon, there we go, Phoenicia, which is on this side of the Mediterranean Sea, way up north, here's Galilee, Jerusalem is down here. So this is Gentile Canaanite region. And then Jesus is going to circle around on this side of the Sea of Galilee. So we've had the feeding of the 5,000, if you remember, it talked about that being in a largely a Jewish context. Five loaves, two fish, 12 baskets of leftover fragments. So you can see uh, the numbers of the Old Testament, the five books of the Torah, uh, the, the, the Old and the New Covenant, or the, 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 the curse and the blessing and so forth. And then 12 baskets for the 12 tribes, for each of the 12 apostles. But we're going to look at the feeding of the 4,000 today, which happens in a Gentile region. So there are two feedings. And, and those two feedings show him to be the savior, not only of Jew, but of Gentile as well. But this Gentile woman, this Canaanite woman, Syrophoenician woman, uh, we looked at that story and it's an illustration. She believes in the defilement that is within. She believes that the scribes and the Pharisees rejected in their self-righteousness. Because first the disciples you know, get away from us. Jesus doesn't say anything. And then he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And through the whole thing, she worships him. So, you know, to, to observe the conversation, he and the disciples are insulting her, are turning their backs on her, are acting as if she has no worth in herself whatsoever. And her response is to agree with that and to worship him and simply cry out, Lord, help me. And then Jesus says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Her faith was great because the object of her faith was Christ and his mercy. And so the test, remember Larry asked about his testing. Tests in the Bible are not like tests in school. You're given a test to, so the teacher can find out she doesn't know. She needs to find out what you know. God knows. He puts people to the test to reveal the nature of true faith to the rest of us. Okay? So in the Canaanite woman, we see true faith that fully accepts, I'm an unworthy sinner, I'm a Gentile dog, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from your master's table. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Okay? And that's the freedom and comfort and full assurance of salvation. It ain't coming from our works because did I do enough? That's always the question. Comfort, consolation, and certainty of salvation comes from the grace of Christ for the sinner. Okay? It's entirely a gift. All right, so then what happens is verse 29 through 31 Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on a mountain and sat down there. Whew. It's been a long day. Hard work. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them those who were lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Those are those. These are they 
who recognized the reality of their sin. They were regenerated by the grace of God that they had heard in Jesus, and they flocked to him. And in all of those healing miracles, we see a foretaste of the resurrection, where the corruption of our nature will be no more. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak. The maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now remember I said this is a largely Gentile region, but they're learning something from Jesus. Here's this, he's not just a Jewish rabbi, he is the Messiah of Israel, and who is he coming for? The Gentile nations. Now on Christmas, you hear Isaiah 9 on Christmas Eve. You know, Handel's Messiah. The people that walked, that walked in darkness, that walked in darkness. Started it a little bit too low, but uh, <laughs> the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Okay? And it speaks there in Isaiah about Galilee of the Gentiles, which was spoken of, if you remember, way back at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. So Galilee of the Gentiles. Here, when Jesus comes to them, here is the Messiah of Israel, and he's bringing salvation to us, the Gentiles. Okay, and they flocked to him. That's why they say they glorified the God of Israel. Okay? So remember what Jesus had said to the Canaanite woman. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was a test that revealed that her faith was in the promise made to Abraham. And the promise made to Abraham, the foundational promise of the gospel in your seed, Abraham, only the Jews will be blessed and the rest of humanity will go to hell. No, no. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All of the families of the earth. That's behind. That promise made to Abraham, that's a foundational promise for Israel. That's constitutive, right? It creates the chosen people. But they're chosen, now this goes back to kind of your two question, to be a blessing to the nations. And Israel was at her best when she acted in the Old Testament out of that faith. Was uniquely what God had called her to be, and that's what made her attractive to others. She was at her worst when she put up the walls and said, stay away. Like the disciples were doing to the Canaanite woman, send her away. She cries out after us. Okay? So the, the Gentile, Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman, she knew and believed that the salvation was from the Jews, the promise made to Abraham, but for all families of the earth. Okay? And that's what Jesus rejoices in and then gives thanks for. And then that's what he does. He goes to Galilee of the Gentiles around the Sea of Galilee and all of these people come to him and he heals them all. And these are Gentile folks. It's amazing that it took so long for Peter and others 
even after um, Pentecost, to realize this gospel is for all the nations. Okay? So the promise made to Abraham, I said that was constitutive. It created them. That was their identity. The seed of Abraham that brings salvation to all. Then you've got Matthew where Jesus says at the end of the gospel, go and make disciples only of the Jews. No, no. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay. So that, it's a what I'm, what I'm wanted to show you this morning at the outset here in chapter 15 is the continuity. We tend to read the Gospels all too often as if the one thing that we're talking about now has nothing to do with what preceded it or what follows us, follows it in the narrative. And that's not, that's not true at all. Okay? Um, so the evangelists carefully bear witness to the things that Jesus did and said and their arrangement, if you will, of the, of the account. I mean, it's historical, but they're picking and choosing what they include and don't include to highlight great truths. And in this case, salvation is of the Jews, but for all people. And that's what the Canaanite woman believed, and that's what these people believed when they said and glorified the God of Israel. Okay. Uh, then we'll go on to verse 32, but if you have any Questions? Okay. Yes? How did this woman know about Jesus? I mean, she didn't go to temple or anything. Well, see, isn't that related to the question earlier? I mean, how did, how did she know? How did this woman, the Canaanite woman that we looked at two weeks ago and reviewed today, how did she know? Well, yeah, you're right. She never went to the temple. Right. But word, Jesus preaching, he preached most in Galilee where there were Jews and there were Jewish synagogues. And he always went to the synagogue to show the priority of that, not simply for Israel's sake, but the priority of the synagogue, the Old Testament faith for all nations. So they, she would have heard him in some way, even if it was only through word of mouth, word of mouth that talked about Jesus of Nazareth and illuminated that the promises made in the Old Testament were fulfilled in him. Remember Matthew 11, the disciples of John the Baptist are sent by John. Are you the coming one or do you look for another? And he doesn't simply say, yeah, I'm the, I'm the coming one. No, he answers the question by saying, go and tell John the things that you hear and see. And then he describes all of the miracles that are there in 29 through 31. And those miracles are all fulfillment of Old Testament. The other thing you need to know is that the Gentiles were not allowed in the presence, in the synagogue, but they were allowed outside and there was a, a screen so they could listen to the prophets. And it's often the case that those who are the most beaten down and excluded are those who are the quickest to understand and believe. And those who are the most arrogant, proud, and self-righteous are often the quickest to miss the point and not to believe. So here you go. There's a blessing to being downtrodden and beaten up 
because you're like tilled soil ready to receive. So I don't know all how she, how the word contacted her that she came, was regenerated to this faith. I only know that, that it did. Deacon. Yep, the widow of Zarephath, who was from the same region. She was a Phoenician woman. Same region that Queen Jezebel came from. Okay, so verse 32, as I said, this feeding of the 4,000 takes place in this Gentile region. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. And there's the wonderful word, splachna, compassion, which means that his heart you know, like breaks open for them in merciful love. Because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. See, notice this total dependence is set up even by, by the narrative itself. Now we're talking about physical food, but that they have nothing to eat also speaks of their, that spiritual reality. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. What did the disciples want for the Canaanite woman? Send her away. She cries out after us. Jesus says, I don't want to send them away. And there are Gentiles in that congregation. So they're seeing in Jesus a heart of love, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? What is amazing about verse 33, that question. Deacon? <laughs> What's that you're saying? Exactly. They'd all witnessed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. That's even more than they had the last time and a few little fish. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. Again, very Eucharistic language. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it gave it to them. Okay. So they all ate and were filled. Now that expression means that the food they were given fully satisfied them. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. And the number seven is not without its significance in the Bible. Just like the number five, the five books of Moses, the Torah, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Seven. Seven is Yahweh's holy number. That this feeding came from him who appeared to Moses at the burning bush as the great I am for all people. Now those who ate were 4,000 men. So the number four, times 10, times 10, times 10, the four winds, the four corners, the number four is always associated with the earth. 
you know, north, south, east, west, the four winds, the four corners, and so forth. That's why there are four Gospels, because the Gospel is to be preached to the ends of the earth. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene uh, came from. So you see how the two miraculous feedings work together. Feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is Messiah, the seed of Abraham for the Jews, the fulfiller of the five books of Moses. Okay, the old covenant gives way to the new covenant, the fulfillment in his blood. Feeding of the 4,000, seven loaves, a few fish, seven baskets, um, and then 4,000. So for all people, not just the Jews. Okay. So the miracle of feeding, and it's not the main message. I mean, there, there's truth in trust in the Lord, he shall take care of you. You shall want for nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's truth in that, but the main point is not trust in Jesus and you will have food in the refrigerator. The main point is I am the bread of life. I am the source of life and salvation. Okay. And, and that's the same thing with the miracles. The, the miracles of Jesus, all of those healing miracles took place. But the, the maladies, as we've spoken so often, illustrate the spiritual condition, like blindness or deafness or the uncleanness of leprosy or demonic oppression, being mute and unable to speak. That all illustrates the spiritual condition that we are in for which we need a savior. So he gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He's the one who creates faith, who regenerates faith. So to see is not mere physical sight, but to see is the seeing of faith. To hear is not mere physical hearing, but to hear the message of the gospel of Christ and to believe it, to trust in it. The, the cleansing, that's why cleansing of leprosy, the cleansing of sin. The paralytic who is made to walk in chapter 9, sin paralyzes us. So he's made to walk, he's set free from his sin. So all of those miracles, they really happened, but they talk and illustrate and teach the spiritual deliverance that comes through his gospel. And on the last day, we will all rise from the dead. So there's a foretaste of the resurrection. But some of those, you know, the, the faith healing contingent of um, quote-unquote Christianity, that is what is seen by them as the reason, you know, you have a problem, you've got to pray hard enough, you don't pray hard enough, you're yep. not going to get what you want. So Jesus becomes the genie in the bottle. Okay where I believe in him for what I'm going to get out of him. You know, I can throw away the glasses. I don't need the LASIK surgery. I can, I need hair. Oh, Lord, give me hair. He will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, but the... your desire of your heart is shows what your yeah, the, God is. That's right. He'll give you the desires of your heart, but the desires of your heart show you who your God and Savior is. Right. All right. So there's, there's um, the end of chapter 15. 
Now, chapter 16, and remember, we are moving to the fourth discourse, which is chapter 18. We're not going to get there today. But chapter 16 is very significant. Jesus is going to retreat up to Caesarea Philippi, which is way up here, north of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's at the far extreme of the Tetrarchy of Philip. He's one of the Herods. There is Caesarea Philippi. So he's on his way up there to have a retreat with the disciples. We are now at this point into the third year of Jesus' ministry. So the 12 have been with Jesus for a couple of years, two and a half years probably by this time. From Caesarea Philippi, uh, there will be then the transfiguration that takes place where Peter, James, and John see him metamorphosized before their eyes and it's like a burning bush revisitation. The glory of God at the burning bush shines through Jesus' flesh. So they had seen him as the humble man in his state of humiliation. In his transfiguration, they're going to see who he really is in his flesh as not only son of man, but son of God. So that's in chapter 17. But it's preceded by this um, retreat in Caesarea Philippi where the apostle Peter, uh, on behalf of all of the disciples, makes the good confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Meanwhile, the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, what is the, what is the amazing thing about that verse and the, the demands of the scribes and Pharisees? He has already performed many signs. We're a long way from Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem is down here, you know, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. From Jerusalem up to here, you look at, this is, this is about 10 miles. Way up there, north of the Sea of Galilee, you're talking over 100 miles. So it's not like, you know, they took a bullet train from Jerusalem <laughs> up there. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Jesus had attracted a lot of attention. So they're following him around. You got the multitudes that are just adoring him. And that hacked off the scribes and Pharisees because they weren't adored like Jesus was adored. So there's jealousy. There's envy of him. And as John's gospel clearly indicates... The high priest the San, uh, who presided over the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, for the most part, fully accepted that these miracles took place. But yet they rejected Jesus and didn't trust in him. You know, it's not as if they said, ah, this is a fraud. He didn't really heal these people who were sick. They, they accepted that. So there are scribes and Pharisees within the multitudes, perhaps here of the 4,000 who had 
witnessed this miracle as well as the other miracles of healing. It, it is very much. That's a good, I'm glad you mentioned that, Melinda. Sounds like Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh, when, when his country is decimated by the plagues, he's not running around saying, this didn't happen. It's a figment of our imagination. No, it happened, but his heart was hardened, and he would not believe. That's the nature of unbelief which goes back to the, how we opened up Bible class today, the nature of the corruption. There's no free will there, was there? It's not as if the person is a blank slate and he just examines the data. He doesn't believe, oh, this seems reasonable, so I'll decide to believe. Faith is not a product of our human reason because of the problem of sin. Okay. Yes. Yes. Well, in the case of Thomas, this is an example of what we talked about at the beginning. A person who becomes a Christian is regenerated by God the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. But the old Adam, the old nature, is still there. So remember the man that came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Okay? So there is a dual nature within the Christian, within Thomas. So Jesus helped Thomas because of the fact that he Thomas believed in him. Right, but he doesn't help the Pharisees because... Well, he does help the Pharisees, but they reject his help. Okay. He helps the Pharisees by faithfully preaching the word. The question, why do some believe and others remain hardened in their sin, I don't know. And this also teaches us to walk by faith. We can only do what we're given to do. So I can only teach this class, and if you dismiss it and reject it, you know, I pray for your acceptance of the word, but if you reject it, um, you could say that's on you, but I mean, it's, it's, it, we can only do what God has given us to do. I could say more about Thomas, but I'll save that for another time. <coughs> Okay, verse 2 of chapter 16. Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky but you cannot discern the signs of the times. The sign, signs of the times. What are those signs of which he is speaking? <coughs> not here, not here. The signs that Messiah has come. Remember what Jesus said 
to the disciples of John the Baptist. Go and tell John, Matthew 11, 3, 4, and 5, and then 6 after that. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Let, 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 me, let me add some color. The blind receive their sight as a gift of God's grace, not by their merits. The lame walk as a gift of God's grace, not by their merits. The lepers are cleansed as a gift of God's grace, not by their works. The deaf hear as a gift of God's grace, not by their works. The dead are raised up. They didn't raise themselves. It was a gift of God's grace. The poor, spiritually poor and impoverished, have the gospel, the good news of forgiveness preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The scribes and the Pharisees were offended at Jesus for one reason above all others. He forgave sin. He was merciful. So when he's talking about the signs here, it's all of those things that I read from Matthew 11 that he referred to when the disciples of John came to him. And all of those things are in the Old Testament. Remember, we've looked at just a few passages from Isaiah alone that spoke about the ministry of Messiah. And the ministry of Messiah is a ministry of grace. It's a ministry of forgiveness by what Christ has done. And they hated that. They were offended at that. This man, remember Luke's gospel, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Which is as if to say, we're not sinners. He should be receiving us, patting us on the back. Congratulations, you're so wonderful. Which means I don't need a savior. I need someone who congratulates me for being my own God, my own savior. Okay? They were offended at Jesus because of the grace of God and the forgiveness that he proclaimed. So the signs of the times. Messiah, the king. How many times has he said this? Remember the, the kingdom parables. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. That is as if he were saying, the Messiah is at hand. He is the kingdom. And they didn't read the signs by all of the things that he did and said. Susan? I don't know what word Matthew uses for miracle, but when I hear signs of the times, I, I think of the way, you know, a phrase that we use today. But sign is the same thing that John uses. Oh, yes. For sign. Yes. Sign, a miracle in John's gospel is sign, like changing of water into wine, um, cleansing of the leper, etc. Now, am I? Oh, I, Kathy turned it off out there because she has a lesson. Good. I'm still, my, the microphone records in there, but until she starts teaching, it's also on the, on the other system. This next verse is very important, and it's very important because of what happens in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asks them, who do men say that I am? And then, well, some say John the Baptist and so forth. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes his confession. It's very important because of its reference to Jonah, the prophet from the Old Testament. When you think about Jonah, you know, the prophet Jonah, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? 
The whale, yeah, being swallowed by this fish and then vomited up three days later. Good, that's what you're supposed to think about. I mean, I also think of as a pastor how Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites, but, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's part of it. But you're supposed to think of Jonah. So if I said the sign of Jonah, that was the miracle of being swallowed up by this fish and then blah, vomited up on the third day. Okay? So. Yes, that is correct. And okay, well, remember that. Let's go to the text here, verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation. Now, it's adulterous, you know, this is spiritual adultery. So, idolatry and adultery are connected, closely related. So, spiritual idolatry is spiritual adultery, where you give your heart over to another God. And the Pharisees and the scribes' God was the God of their own self-righteousness. So, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it. Now, what's interesting is those were all signs. The healing of the sick, the feeding of the 4,000, and so forth. They were all signs. But he says no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Some manuscripts omit prophet. It's immaterial. The sign of Jonah. And he departed from them. So what is, what is the sign of Jonah, what is he directing? You're not going to get any sign except the sign of Jonah. I think that was um, when he went to the Ninevites. Um, he did go to the Ninevites. And, and then um, uh, God was going to destroy the Ninevites, but then he decided that he wouldn't because Jonah wanted him to. But, um, right, but by the preaching of Jonah after the, the whale incident... Well, well, but, but the sign of Jonah, that's what I'm after. What is the sign? Beth? It, the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of the Christ. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself tells us. Now, the sign of Jonah here, Matthew chapter... Uh, 16, verse 4. If you look at um, Matthew 12, 39. So he's returning to what he had already said. In Matthew chapter 12, Start at verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They don't, get it they, don't, they don't get it. He answered and said to them. See, it's the same question as you have in chapter 16. He said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Now here he explains the sign, which isn't, the explanation isn't repeated in chapter 16, but it's the same explanation. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented, something that the scribes and the Pharisees refused to do, and they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here, namely Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. The Queen of the South, remember the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of the Son of God. So Jonah is thrown into the sea. Three days later, he's vomited up. That's a picture of the death of Christ and the resurrection. And Melinda is quite correct. Jonah doesn't jump in. He is thrown in. And he commands that that be done. Jesus doesn't nail himself to the cross. He's nailed to the cross. Okay? Like a lamb of God, the sin of the world is imputed to him and his passive obedience, he goes to the cross. On the third day, he rises from the dead. So what Jesus, back to chapter 16, what Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees here who had followed him after the feeding of the 5,000 is sort of like, I am done showing you anything. The greatest testimony that I am the Messiah will be my death and resurrection on the third day, which is the sign of Jonah. And that death and resurrection, the sign of Jonah, is the heart of the Christian confession of faith when we say Jesus is Lord or when we confess the Creed, the Apostles, or the Nicene. Now that is important because of what happens in the... I'm going to jump to it now because we're running out of time, and then we'll come back and, and pick up some other things here. But in chapter 16, verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, there's conversion again, but my Father who is in heaven. So, Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds and says, you are blessed. Blessed are you, and then he calls him Bar-Jonah. Why? Here's something. Peter's father was not Jonah. I mean, not, I'm not just referring to the prophet Jonah, but I, I'm talking about his father's name was not Jonah. I mean, there's, you know, I know Jonah's today. Peter's father's name was John. It's a related name, but it's not the same name. Jesus is always fooling around intentionally with names. Like the guy who made the confession, Simon Peter, 
the name he was given at his circumcision was not Peter, it was Simon. Jesus gave him the name Peter, Cephas in Aramaic, Petros in Greek, on account of the confession that he would one day make, namely, you're the Christ. That's the rock. The rock is the confession, that foundation. Okay? But Jesus fools around with his name. Why? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I can imagine Peter, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Oh, Jesus, my dad's name is John. <laughs> Listen to what I'm saying. Earlier in the chapter, he had just talked again about the sign of Jonah. So what's the point? At the heart of the confession of the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is what? The death and resurrection of the Christ. That's why he calls him a son of Jonah. Okay? He's talking about the spiritual origin of that confession. He's talking about that which is at the heart of that confession, namely the death and resurrection of the Christ. Okay. So that's a, that's a very cool thing. In John's Gospel, chapter 21, the resurrection appearances at the Sea of Galilee, it was the uh, fourth resurrection appearance, I believe. Anyway, uh, there, the New King James reads, you know, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And then you'll see a footnote, the NU manuscripts, which are the older manuscripts, say John. That's because the older manuscripts got it right Jesus was using his proper name of Simon, son of John. But the memory in the scribes of this all-important son of Jonah was in their head. So you have the copyist put Jonah instead of John there. It's an interesting little factoid. But here in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus is calling Simon Peter, the son of Jonah, to make the connection that the death and resurrection of the Christ is at the heart of the Christian confession. So I wanted to take you to that today. We'll, when we come back to chapter 16 then next week, we can uh, continue uh, with hearing about Jesus' warning of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven is yeast, you know. So here leaven refers to false doctrine. Um, in contrast to the leaven of the gospel, which is the pure gospel, pure doctrine. Okay, thank you very much.